Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and we are so excited because we have a very special guest on the show with us tonight. We have Brandon from Talking Bay 94, who is one of our really good friends in the podcasting world and also one of our favorite podcasters. So welcome to the show, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me. What What an honor. What a thrill. We love your show. And honestly, I was telling you this before, and I'm just going to say it on the air so that everyone knows, <laughs> if you're not listening to Talking Day 94, you should. Because Brandon gets the best Star Wars creator interviews of any podcast out there, honestly. As you'll see in this conversation, because we're about to talk about one of our favorite pieces of behind-the-scenes knowledge in Star Wars, Brandon is an expert on behind-the-scenes knowledge. And I feel like I have always really loved that. If you're a longtime listener, you'll know that like watching documentaries and bonus features is like a longtime seminal piece of Caitlin and I's Star Wars fandom. But it's something I'm not like, I don't tap into as much as I would like to. I think that I, I oftentimes focus on story and characters and stuff that's happening inside of the story. But I feel like Brandon's show, Talking Bay 94, really is just so nice because I can drop into an interview of someone that I'm super familiar with or someone that I actually have no idea who they are <laughs> and learn mm -hmm. something completely new about their work and their contribution to Star Wars. And it's super cool. So I highly recommend everyone to listen to it. Well, that's very nice. Thank you for, for saying that. <laughs> I have to ask, Brandon, do you have like a like a bingo card of everyone or like a like an ongoing spreadsheet of everyone you want to interview and you just like get to check it off with every new interview? Because I would do that. <laughs> I should make a bingo. I have a I mean, I have a very extensive like Google Docs spreadsheet that like ruins my life. That's like color coded and it's like what what day I reached out? What day they responded? What day they rejected me? You Whoa. know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like the worst. Um, and then there's always so then I've listed pretty much everyone that I would want to interview on there. And then some people I don't have contact method for, or some people you know just haven't responded or whatever it is. Uh, but I might go a further you know beyond that and like put it on my mirror or something of like Ben Burt on like a sticky note or something and, <laughs> yeah. and make my own manifest video. it. Yeah, say right. Ben Burt's name five Three times, times in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Spin around twice. Yeah. Make an R2 T2 sound and he'll yeah. appear right. in your inbox. <laughs> <laughs> But we are going to be talking about Empire of Dreams today, which came out in 2004. It was in the Star Wars trilogy box set, which this was actually my first box set of Star Wars. And like, I think I got it for Christmas in 2006 or something. And it had this DVD in it. And I can't tell you how many times Charlotte and I watched it together. It's the best thing in the world. And it has been so long, honestly, since I've watched it. And I was texting Charlotte while I was watching it like, it's kind of ridiculous how foundational this is for my understanding yeah. of how Star Wars was made. <laughs> and I was talking to her, you know, I can quote so much of this documentary and I did not even realize I could. It's so good. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I've seen this documentary so many times, but it actually has been so long since I've seen it. So it was so nice to revisit it. And I know that we've wanted to do an episode on Empire of Dreams for a really long time, and we weren't really sure how to do it. 
And I think it just is so perfect that we have Brandon here because of his knowledge. I know he loves, you love it, right? The Empire of Dreams <laughs> documentary. Like, yeah. it's the best. I hope you love it. I hope you love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> is I, uh, no, I always say, I always say Empire of Dreams, like, might be my favorite Star Wars movie, if not the one that I've seen the most, besides like A New Hope. Uh, because just like y'all, like, I got the box set for Christmas. You know, I was just like this, you know, young nerd and I just watched it hundreds of times. And like you guys, like I, I know it like backwards and forwards, I feel like. And even last week when I was needing like comfort movies, like this was what I turned on um, as a comfort movie because it's just kind of this foundational element of of who I am and like what I like about Star Wars that that just means so much. Totally. I feel like it, it also justifies uh, Star Wars place in history how important it is, what themes they're going for, and everything that I think as a fan, it's just so nice to hear that. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm-hmm. it's like when you say it's like comfort food, I feel very comforted by the documentary as well, just because it's like a really good meal. It's <laughs> or like a really good dessert, I feel like. <laughs> I think it really, <laughs> it does in a way, I don't want to, like legitimize is the wrong word, but I think it puts the right amount of weight on just how important the original trilogy is in the history of filmmaking. And it really like it focuses on George. It focuses on the response to the films, the technology that was created during this time period. It really does have it all. And I think sometimes, you know, especially when we were all younger, it was like, if you're a nerd, you're not cool. And liking Star Wars is a weird thing to do. Right. We've all heard that story right. and critique. But this documentary is like, no. It's super cool. Here's two and a half <laughs> hours. Why? <laughs> right. It exactly. makes me feel good. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I, this box set is is so like paramount to like my fandom. Right. Getting that silver yeah. box set for Christmas yes. and like what is it? 2004 probably. So that's right before Revenge of the Sith. So I'm like at all time peak of like I'm excited. I'm ready and getting this. Because here's a, a side story just to derail it as we begin the conversation, which was, and my, my mom does not listen to my podcast appearances, so she will not hear me um, bash on her a little bit, but I was not allowed <laughs> to really watch uh, episodes five and six growing up for the longest time because they were too dark. Wow. Uh, because they were, yeah. And so uh, episode four I had on VHS Special Edition, I watched that like, you know, hundreds of times. Episodes five and six were like a special treat, like once a year kind of thing. Uh, and then even like Phantom Menace, like I wasn't allowed to have like Darth Maul action figures because he was too much like the devil, blah, blah, blah. So when this came out, when the DVD came out, I was able to like really invest in the original trilogy even more so. And then this kind of gave it all context. And I think that all combined really kind of set me up for not only loving the prequels, but then understanding what came before in, in a way that I didn't really before. So, yeah, I think that by saying it set you up for loving the prequels is an, another really good point about this documentary. I think it, this is a documentary about basically the original trilogy and George Lucas and everything like that. It's very, I don't know. It talks about the new trilogy. It talks about the prequel trilogy or as Caitlin calls it, the second trilogy, but it, <laughs> it, it does really focus Charlotte on, does not. <laughs> it does really focus on the original trilogy in that time period, which is fair. That's what it's supposed to do. But I did think that it, it by, legitimizing and like you said Caitlin legitimizing isn't the right word but it really just struck how important it is and it also really made me have even more respect for George Lucas and therefore understand his creative process and why the prequels and his stamp on the prequels is so important 
Yeah, definitely. I think that it just it brings about so many good memories. And when you were talking, Brandon, it just it reminded me of getting it for Christmas. I know I already mentioned it, but like I didn't see Star Wars until 2006, 2000, fall 2005, something like that. So getting this box set for Christmas, it was like my mom split up every single DVD into a separate present. <laughs> and so That's great. I got, <laughs> I got all, well, I got the box set together, but I got each of the prequel trilogy movies individually and I got a calendar and the box set was wow. the last one that I opened of the original trilogy. And I remember freaking out that it had an entire DVD just for <laughs> bonus features. And, so good. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was just it was the beginning like having something like this and we're talking I'm talking here specifically about the box set itself it was mm-hmm. because up until that point Charlotte had always like brought over her movies and we watched them at my house but now I was like I have them myself like these this is mine this is mine to be a fan of it's not just like borrowing from Charlotte or something like that it really in it felt like taking ownership of it and I think that the in a way like the documentary itself does that too because like we've been talking about it almost gives you this whole list of reasons of why this is so important. And it's like, here are talking points of why I can tell you, person who's judging me for being a nerd about Star Wars, <laughs> about why this is so incredible. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so no, great. I love, I love that because this documentary does such a great job. And it even doesn't spend that much time doing it, but talking about especially Lucas's influences and like what kind of inspired him. And we'll get into it, obviously. But I always say, like, Star Wars was my film school, and like documentaries like this, then mentioning Kurosawa. I did not know who Akira Kurosawa was until I watched Empire of Dreams or until I read it in The Insider. And so, like, getting those little nuggets of like, okay, what inspired Lucas to do something? Um, really, then, like, like, even this, I'm watching it while we're talking just in the background, like, French connection. Like, I would never have known that as a 12 year old, you know, like, know. like, and, yeah. and kind of painting this full picture for me of what cinema could be um i think was was so impactful just generally as well it's so cool because i had the exact same experience and i often talk about how like i wish i went to film school and everything and i'm super interested in watching old movies new movies and just examining them from like uh i don't know um like a discussion point and like a Mm -hmm. a stance and a different lens but i feel like I feel like Star Wars really is the reason why I'm interested in that. And this documentary actually did totally, just like you said, Brandon, totally helped me get me on my way for that. And I I don't think I would have known about Kurosawa either. Maybe the only thing is that Bare Naked Lady song, One Week, which mentions Kurosawa. <laughs> oh, my God. That's definitely my first touch point of I, you know, it doesn't come up often on the show of how extensive of a music library Charlotte has and how, not even that, how well Charlotte memorizes lyrics. It's it's a ridiculous skill that she has. And uh, Bare Naked Ladies is one of the many examples that I have very strong memories of. <laughs> My first concert, I was like five. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like Star Wars is Star Wars is a film school. It really is. And that's what makes it so great. And I also think that a quote that was said in this documentary is so important for how we, I think about Star Wars, how we all think about Star Wars. And it's the Star Wars trilogy didn't just change the way we look at movies. It changed the way movies are made. And I think that this documentary does such a good job of going through the reasons why. And I think that we could we should leave it at that before we go into our parts So in part one, we're going to be discussing the creation of Star Wars. 
And in part two, we're going to be talking about the filming process. And then in part three, we'll be talking about the reaction to Star Wars. And without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Welcome to part one, where we're talking about the creation of Star Wars. This is probably my favorite chunk of the documentary. I I love pre-Star Wars, Star Wars, and George Lucas. <laughs> I think they spend a lot of time on it in the documentary, too. I think this probably, like, up through A New Hope, gets the most concentrated uh, screen time in the in the film, which makes a lot of sense, I think, if you're – if the thesis statement of the documentary is to understand why Star Wars is successful and to talk about it starting at the beginning is really important. So what are some of our favorite parts about the origin of Star Wars? And Brandon, we'll start with you since you're our guest. Okay. Uh, I mean, like we were saying, the origin of Star Wars and its importance and the reason it hits so well for so many people is again, going back to that Campbellian aspect of everything. And, you know, Marie Claire and, and what the force really dives into that meta better than I ever could. Um, but, but being able to kind of lay that groundwork in such a concise way that this documentary does, right? Like they have Bill Moyers on here talking about Joseph Campbell. Know, right? And again, as a 12 year old, I'm like, who is this guy? Like what's going on? And then you dive in further and further in the power of myth. Um, and so that more than anything, if we're if we're kind of breaking this documentary into chunks, is such like a a profound piece to put into something that you then just like put into a DVD box set and then say, here you go, like enjoy enjoy Star Wars in a very different way and think about it in a very different way than you were already enjoying it. And I think that's very powerful. Right. I feel like there's something so interesting about how this documentary definitely says that George Lucas spent all this time. You know, he was if I could be wrong about this and my memory might not be serving me right now, but he was an anthropology major. So I feel like am I right about that, Caitlin? I think you I think he took anthropology classes. OK, at I least, couldn't remember if not a major. <laughs> He's very interested in it. So I feel like he really understood and this documentary really hammers that home about how to strip down popular myth and why he was so interested in people like joseph campbell and the fact that the documentary mentions that joseph campbell himself said that george lucas was his greatest student i i find it so fascinating and i think Mm -hmm. that if anything the first time watching this it really was like oh my god this this movie that i think so many people think is just a fun action movie at the heart of it there's a reason why so many people had such a strong joyful reaction to it and it's because it was tapping into all these amazing things that george had had stripped down from centuries upon centuries of myth and stories yeah i think the documentary does a really good job of balancing both the childlike fun nature of why star wars hits home so well with also these like really deep psychological underpinnings of humanity at large (laughs) and and it all it all kind of comes together you know the perfect storm in a bottle kind of thing i will say that my favorite part of this chunk of time are the audition tapes it's kind of so good (laughs) random but these were my favorite things to watch on youtube when like in this 2006 2007 period I, i i was like Wow, the internet. I have video from the 70s. Isn't YouTube amazing? (laughs) (laughs) It's almost a little embarrassing, but I loved watching them. And I think, like I said, it's been a while since I've revisited this documentary. And, 
you know, I there are tidbits for as much as I can quote from this. <laughs> there are a lot of tidbits that I also forgot too, and. I think one thing that we'll probably touch on a lot in this discussion is just the tenacity of George Lucas. And um, I remember we talked about this a lot in our By George series, but like the consistency of George Lucas throughout the years, like he is who he is, who he is. And he has been since film school in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) And there's something so like admirable about that, I think, especially when you look at this early time where he's – making sure that everything is as perfect as it can be and for his vision. But I had forgotten like how long they did casting for. It was like six months. And you see Georgie's like, I just, it's a long time to sit in a room (laughs) and talk to people. (laughs) And you're like, that that feels right of George's alley to say something like that. But I think even now watching these uh, auditions back, and I think we're in a really cool position. Sorry, I'm kind of uh, like talking about 17 different things at once. But to now be outside of the sequel trilogy and what, 15 years removed from this documentary, this documentary was made at a time when, you know, the sequel trilogy didn't exist. The sale to Disney was very far off. Like it has a very different lens on analyzing the original trilogy than I think Lucasfilm would even put out now, which I think is really fascinating. And to look at these actors like Carrie Fisher and Mark and Harrison in 1975, 76, and to see like how far this actually took them, even like through 2020 or 2019, it's kind of incredible. And that kind of retrospective is so cool. And it just enhanced watching these, these audition tapes for me that much more this time around. I love I love that you brought up the audition tapes because because of this documentary it's audition tapes have always served as like my barometer of is this behind the scenes feature going to be worth my time or not like it's what I, like I think even the oh, beginning for Phantom Menace had like Jake Lloyd and Natalie Portman's audition in there as well as well as like a different Anakin actor and so like both of those kind of combining like was I was like okay like if if this is gonna be a good behind the scenes feature as a thirteen year old I was like it's gonna have the auditions which I would love to watch and even you go and we haven't seen that much from Disney Star Wars of course but we have seen like Daisy Ridley's like where she's crying and it's like very powerful and you're like okay yeah. like this is I'm really drawing a lot from what you're saying like seeing them even so young and understanding kind of the gravity of it I think really goes a long way into then. Um, understanding who they are now and like the characters that they've brought all the way with them. In a way, it's like you get it. You get why they were chosen. And especially with these ones seeing, I think the point of like them showcasing all these audition tapes in the documentary is about, look how like every star of the seventies tried out for this, (laughs) you know, and that, and that, that is interesting, but I think it's cool to see, the differences between them and to be able to pinpoint why someone like Mark Hamill was selected to be Luke Skywalker. And I remember Mark said he was like, I just brought sincerity to the role, to the audition. And when I was thinking about that word, it totally plays off in his audition. He's more sincere than the other people who are auditioning in that moment. And it's like, I get it. And I think if we're talking about like film school and like understanding and like analyzing film, it's cool to have a little bit of a view of this process to be like Mark works. So-and-so doesn't Han work or Harrison works best with Carrie or whoever, you know, and to be able to, to really at least think about how they made the decisions that they made. Yeah. Something that you mentioned, um, 
Mark Hamill's audition being sincere and being described as is as sincere. And I think it's later in the documentary, like towards the end when Harrison Ford, you know, Harrison Ford has a lot of beautiful things to say in this documentary that I feel like it overlooked because of his personality that is like a very PR <laughs> front. You know what I mean? But I feel like he has like a gruff personality these days. But when he does really get into talking about why he love and loves Star Wars, I feel like I feel like he has a lot of great things to say. And I've always really respected his like appearance in this documentary. Anyway, he says that at the end, he talks about why he really likes Star Wars and why uh, George Lucas is such a visionary and how George was telling his story. And he talks about how Star Wars is so personal to George because Luke is him. You know, I think that we all know that Luke is like George Lucas's self-insert and how Luke really wanted to prove himself to his parents. And I think that there's definitely a, a like a, a word link between needing Mark to be sincere and how George made the character of Luke as so so personal. And like those things are all wrapped up yeah. together. Yeah, uh, it really is. Again, you, you go back to the audition tapes and you see because even like Harrison was not supposed to get that part right. And he just sat in there for what you're saying. The six months, I'm sure it was not as long for Harrison itself. But he was there just reading the lines and eventually George had to be like, okay, this is my guy. I'm not just like being crazy by not putting him in because he was in my other movie. Um, and then with with Luke being such a personal character, and I'd be very curious because like even if you go into the Rensselaer books and you look at kind of the progression of who the main character of Star Wars was going to be, right? Mm-hmm. Constantly changed and all these weird drafts. Um, and so... I'd be, I mean, that's a different dive into like Lucas's psyche of, of how he identified at that moment. Um, and then even how that evolved. Cause then you have, you know, in his story treatments for the, the sequel trilogy of Luke becoming either a hermit or a teacher or what we really see in last Jedi. And I wonder if that is again, an, an example of himself inserting as Luke character still and kind of continuing that progression. Yeah, that's a good point. It's really interesting. I think that um, something I also think is interesting about the audition process is that it was casted at the same time as Carrie, Brian De Palma's mm. movie. And, you know, they couldn't be more different. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I think that you could probably make a little bit of a comparison in these movies that they were both personal and like there was a very singular vision about both of these films. So I, I find it so fascinating. And I'm I like, oh my like, God, I yeah, completely it- forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they just wanted to share the space to share the cost. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> but uh, to be fair, Carrie, Carrie is a very different, obviously, tonal movie from Star Wars. But the need for young cast is, is like yeah. if you look at the Carrie cast list, right? It is Sissy Spacek. It is John Travolta in one of his first roles. It's Nancy Allen from RoboCop. Like there are some like goal that they found in the casting process that they were trying to find similar-ish kind of people. And I'd be very interested if any of them overlapped, right? If like Carrie Fisher was trying to become Carrie White or whatever it was, you know, like there's a, a different kind of element to that. I feel like they totally definitely read for those parts. I, I don't know oh, if that's yeah. ever written anywhere, but I could totally hypothesize well, that they I were. That, I think that Carrie Fisher said that Brian De Palma did all the talking at the audition. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think she says it. She says it so well. Like She goes, George didn't talk. He didn't talk then as if like, he progressed, <laughs> which he does, but, you know, right. we, we, we know George Lucas's personality a little bit, I think. <laughs> <But> it's just <laughs> funny. 
One of the things I also, you know, in talking about George, of course, is this whole, you know, the fight to get Star Wars made. And, you know, one of the things we all talk endlessly about is merchandising in Star Wars and how important it is and how galaxy brain it was that George took the merchandising rights (laughs) way (laughs) back when. And this, this is the age old question, right? Because people in the documentary were like, George knew that the world was changing. And that's why he took the merchandising rights. It's like, okay, did George know the world was changing or was he just taking on, grabbing everything that he could for ownership of this film? Did he know it was going to, it was going to be as big as it was? I don't know if he knew if it was going to be as big as it was, but I think he knew he had a collector's mindset, right? Because even very early on, one of the first investments he makes after Star Wars is to buy a comic book shop or ownership in a comic book shop in New York, which is where some of the first Star Wars art prints come out of Super Snipe, I believe it's called in New York. Um, And so that's where I always think it's like, oh, he loved collecting comic book art, or he loved collecting toys, or he loved collecting like kind of that Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers sort of stuff and saw the opportunity on a merchandising side. And that's more than anything, he might not have known it was a hit or not, but he knew that he could at least turn out something that someone would buy. And that's kind of how I've always approached it, but that could be also completely wrong. So. No, I, no, I feel like that's a yeah. good point of view. Yeah, I I feel like I either didn't know about the comic book store or it was buried so deep in my brain that I might as well not have known it. <laughs> <laughs> it is an e- it's an eBay search uh, for, for me, so that's how that's yeah. how I know. Because there's like I, I trust he, you with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. It's the very expensive dye line prints for Joe Johnston. Um, that they only made like 20 of um, come up on eBay every so often. And one day I will spend, you know, however much that is to, to get it. So Worth I feel it. great about it. I feel, yeah. really, I feel really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys don't follow Brandon on Twitter, he often posts about the different eBay bids that he is on. <laughs> I One day I want to just have like a tour of your collection, you know, do like my Star Wars collection tour for YouTube or something because I would love to see, <laughs> you know, because we see you put the bids in, yeah. but we never, we don't always see when the package comes. Brandon, you should totally that's do true. that. No, that's true. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Lacey from Resistance Broadcast has been doing her one day, uh, you know, one post a day of her collection, which is awesome. And I was like, I don't want to copy that, obviously, but I did want to maybe do like just my books or something because that has been a pretty much my entire life has been collecting Star Wars books in different ways, whether they're signed or first edition. This is derailing. No, it's not. We'll it's see. fascinating. One, one day, one day I'll show off everything and everyone will be like, oh, holy crap, this guy has um, not saved his money very well. But as I tell <laughs> no. my fiance, it's an investment. And, it is. Uh, but then she's always like, will you ever sell them? I'm like, no. no. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's not really... <laughs> The definition of an investment, but whatever. Brandon, we get asked all the time about like what our favorite Star Wars reference books are and like what oh, like yeah. sort of like companion guides are like are good for like a Star Wars fan to have. And I'm like yeah. slowly working my way up to owning a lot of Star Wars reference books and like, you know, script books and things like that. But I'd be so interested in seeing your your collection in mass in total. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's a lot, and they're very heavy, and they're hard to move. Because um, I've I've been living in the same studio apartment for three years now, and I'm going to be having to move in in the spring after I get married. And I'm like, okay, I'm already like mentally preparing like to put these in boxes and to have to pay someone to come take them oh down three flights of stairs because it's going to be. Oh. And I, but but that being said, 
you know, in terms of space and in terms of pricing, especially because what we're talking about are very, they're very expensive. And I'm aware of, that I'm lucky that I'm able to buy these, obviously. But when someone is looking to build their library, what I always recommend, and I post about it every time it goes on sale, you can get the Rinsler books, the three making of Star Wars, making of Empire, making of Jedi, the Kindle versions, which are better really than the big hardcover versions because there's sound, there's videos, there's weird deleted scenes that are no, nowhere else. And you can get them for like $7 each. And if you have an iPad, they're incredible resources to have and just like great to just kind of have with you all the time. And so I recommend that to to literally anyone. No, you're so right. We haven't spoken about that on the podcast, but I recently picked that deal up. There was like a $2 deal, uh, yeah. I swear, like a month ago. And I have I have only an, uh, the making of Star Wars, The New Hope from Rinsler. And then I have the prequel ones, um, not any Empire or Return of the Jedi. They're just a little too pricey for me at this point. But I have the digital ones, so like maybe I don't need them. But, right. you know, I do. I will get them someday. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> I love anyway. this. I, I need like Brandon's like top anyway. ten uh, book recommendation <laughs> list as, no, as a, a companion piece to Empire of Dreams. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> you had a note in here, Brandon, about Alan Ladd Jr. being the unsung hero of Star Wars, and yeah. I think he he really is. I feel like he does not get enough credit for basically putting his job on the line <laughs> to. Yep you know promote star wars within the studios and to really be in george's corner about it and i kind of wish there was more i mean this is me like showing that i don't read everything out there contrary to popular belief um actually it's not popular it's very well known that i don't read everything (laughs) um but i feel like he really does get like a ton of screen time in this documentary that i don't think is kind of we don't really see that in other things that come from star wars at least not that have that I've come across as much as what we see in this documentary. Yeah, he he plays a relatively major role in the first Rinsler book, and then it kind of drops off, obviously, because his his role is a little bit more diminished as as yeah. the the movies get a little more successful. But it is again, it goes all the way back to him seeing the success of graffiti and and knowing that George can deliver. And I mean, we'll get into it and how much of a mess the original Star Wars movie was while they were filming. And I'm I'm just imagining myself as like someone that has been in a corporate situation and like has had to you know put on a tie and like go in and talk to shareholders or whatever. Like how difficult that job must have been to defend this weird space fantasy movie that was like not successful at all, that looked terrible, that sounded terrible, that looked cheap, and that had no stars. And Alan Ladd continually, you know, defending George, who he knew and that who he liked, and he knew that he had talent because. One of the things that always sticks out to me about Alan Ladd Jr. is his his father is Alan Ladd, who was like a famous Hollywood actor. And so like he grew up in Hollywood and surrounded by talent. And I, I, I like to think that he could recognize that George had something and was able to kind of continue that, even if it didn't look like it until there was John Williams music put into it. And so, um, yeah, his his contribution here and the fact that he spotlighted even a little bit just really helped me understand who he was with this. And then furthered my appreciation as as time went on. Yeah, I'll say that I feel like if I was in his position, I don't think I could defend Star Wars and how it looked. <laughs> Nor do I really think that I would have invested in it, to be honest. And I know yeah. that's so crazy considering Star Wars is a huge part of my life, but I can't imagine this being pitched to me and be, be me being like, yes, 
sure, even defending it as it goes, <laughs> because I think that it's it's so hard. Like in hindsight, it's be like, you you will be like, oh my gosh, of course I will support that beautiful mythology, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that. I I don't know. I feel like I'm one of those people who would be one of those publishers who passed up Harry Potter. Like I feel like I would be in that position. Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. you, you think you think about how Lucas was pitching this, right? He had no stills or costumes or anything. He had ten Macquarie paintings that he shopped around to all the studios. He had a script that was not really done, right? The script continued to change even after it was bought by 20th Century Fox, and so the process that it took to even get Star Wars to start filming and then the problems that it had after that is really just like, like, yes, you would be a smart businesswoman to to pass on Star Wars right. in 1975, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it, it, it's crazy. It's funny, honestly. <laughs> I, just, I, 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 I like want to think that I would be so charmed by the Ralph Macquarie paintings and everything. I mean, I'm sure I would think they were beautiful, but would I want to fund it? Probably not. Honestly, probably not. So. Well, I think when you would look at something like THX 1138, which is the other space movie, you're like, huh? I don't know. <laughs> uh, because is that going to appeal to a mass audience is really the question. And if what you're going off of is THX 1138 and American Graffiti, like you really could get anything out of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Those are two very they occupy different sides of extremes, I think, as far as tone. So it, it would be a chance and a big risk. And I think it's cool that Alan Ladd Jr. did did understand and did – and maybe if he didn't understand, understood George to have that belief in him because throughout this whole thing, and especially when we're talking about the filming of A New Hope, you hear all of the actors and cast members or, and crew and stuff like that talk about how they just didn't get it. And when you're looking yeah. at, and especially I, I forget what when George was saying that he like showed a rough cut of the film to all of his you know famous director friends without the special effects. A lot of them didn't get it either. And so the fact that you have someone here in the very early stages who does and has that kind of hard belief in you to basically put his money where his mouth is on your behalf, I think is really cool and. Um, I'd be interested to hear more about their relationship in particular. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have to even think about the situation the studios were in, in, let's say, 1975 when this was being pitched, of the success of sci-fi movies during that time, which was relatively non-existent. Like, if you look at the output back then, it's terrible. And in terms of box office, like, the quality of the movie might be great and might be a classic now, but it did terribly at the box office. You have things like, you know, Man Who Fell to Earth. You have things like Zardoz or Solaris or the Planet of the Eight movies. And really, the most successful version is the G-rated 2001 A Space Odyssey which still like even though critics loved it and it did well like was a very tough sell if you watch that movie now you're like i can't imagine being a 10 year old being like yes i would love a hal action figure you know what i mean so (laughs) so pitching that in that landscape of that of that sci-fi landscape of the the late 70s i think is is a feat onto itself absolutely i'm so glad that you brought us to this point because something that i wanted to mention about the creation of star wars is Something that I feel like gets overlooked actually a lot, and that is the firm placement of Star Wars within a historical context in terms of what was happening um, in the world and why Star Wars, why George Lucas really wanted to make Star Wars the way it is. And that was 
because of its its firm placement after the Vietnam War and George Lucas's own commentary on that. And I think it's really cool that Walter Cronkite is in this documentary. <laughs> and I, I think that it's fascinating because that happens within the first 10 minutes of this movie, of this movie, of this documentary. And, you know, this is just a side commentary. When people say Star Wars isn't political, I just will never understand because Star Wars is firmly <laughs> placed. <laughs> within it <laughs> i just don't understand it it's we've all grown up watching all these documentaries uh, being like this is george george's emotions towards this specific conflict and here's how it all fits in into the ecosystem of the box office and why people wanted a movie like this the, the political climate of the 60s and 70s literally and like not <laughs> only that but there's like one-to-one allegories throughout all of star wars movies in terms of political figures and i just think that it it really you can't talk about the success and the creation of Star Wars without considering where it falls in both the history of cinema and also political history and world history. Yeah. You're you're blowing my mind. You're saying Star Wars is political? What? Like <laughs> the controversial it, statement. like what you're saying <laughs> it, it is it it blows my mind when people don't recognize that. Even, you know, Lucas talking about things like making Leia a main character, making her strong, which was not something that was done very often in, you know, these kind of movies. Um, that the way that he approached Star Wars, both politically, socially, whatever whatever he was trying to do, and then escalating it even into the prequels, which got just some people thought too heavy-handed, commenting on on the Bush presidency or the 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 war in Iraq or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he always wanted to infuse politics with Star Wars and with the movies that he was making. And you go, you say, oh, he wants to infuse it with Campbell. He wants to infuse it with Buck Rogers or, or Kurosawa. But he also wanted to make it an allegory for being part of a resistance, being part of a, a you know, taking over. I, I, I put a quote in later on. Um, Kasdan says it, and he says, if the will of the people is strong, they will always win, which, you know, this week made me think of that, but that was in relation to the Ewoks and like a, a tribe of, of people with no technology rising up and defeating this force that felt like it could not be stopped. And by infusing that in a way that like sold toys and like people wore t-shirts of <laughs> made it so that, you know, now you have, you know, people in rallies holding up signs about princess leia or or with quotes from star wars and i really feel like all of that combined makes star wars i wouldn't have a star wars podcast if it didn't mean something more than just like oh it made me feel cool when i was 10 you know what i mean so yeah um i don't know if that said anything but it is the the star wars political debate has really just (laughs) ruffled my feathers oh me too (laughs) i feel like when you talk about when you talk about campbell and when you talk about like modern mythology and modernizing that story it's not just making it set in present day because that's not actually what happened it's it's about having making it modern so that it's relevant to everyone's daily life and what's relevant to everyone's daily life politics wars everything going around around them it's it has to inspire it has to strike a co- uh, a tone um a chord with what's going on in the present day or else it falls flat honestly well it, yeah. or else it's not going to be as long lasting you wouldn't have yeah. we wouldn't be here in 2020 talking about it like this uh if it didn't yep. have a real world response and reaction so i think you guys both Hit the nail on the head. Star Wars is political <laughs> and uh, always has been. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else we want to say about part one? Or are we ready to dive into part two and the actual filming? 
I'm ready. Let's dive in. I'm ready. Okay, so welcome to part two where we're going to be talking about the filming process. Okay, so I feel like this is Brandon's expertise. This, yeah, this is You come this with a, like a, yeah, a, a really big background <laughs> of talking to all these people behind the scenes who were all part of the filmmaking process. And Caitlin and I don't have that experience. Our experience comes from watching documentaries. And I think that's really cool. And like also listening to your podcast. So <laughs> um, we talk a lot about how Star Wars revolution- revolutionized filmmaking, uh, George building cameras and uh, making sure that there are teams that um really make the best visual effects do possible the stuff. do the stuff but like how exactly let's put a fine point on it yeah so star wars like it's easy for me to say like oh the the original trilogy defined movie making and how we make movies now you can't have a marvel movie now without the original trilogy but really the the reasons that people responded so so like succinctly to especially everyone loves talking about that opening shot but if you go beyond that to the space battles and to, to how it looks it go it's the dykstra flex right which is motion control camera work um and then there's the 3d computer animation which is kind of an unsung hero in all of this right you have the wireframes you have the targeting computers you have the death star plans um and then the thing that makes them all believable is the blue screen right and you see this in the in the documentaries and you see the blue screen over and over again whenever you're watching behind the scenes star wars things you see the pictures of the model makers working on it but it was how they shot that blue screen right because rear projection always existed in movie making right you can watch a hitchcock movie and they're driving a, a car and there's a you know projection of the street behind them totally. um but but how they lit especially the blue screen and then applied that to the models and then combined that with the the very specific way that a Dijkstraflex was able to capture shots, all of that combined made things that felt believable that otherwise would never have, right? You can watch Star Trek before, you can even watch Star Trek after with the motion picture especially, and you can see the differences and you can see kind of how it evolves over time. But the reason people responded so quickly to it is because it looked so real and that was because of what they were doing in, in Van Nuys. It's one thing I just... I wish I could have seen it, you know, <laughs> having <laughs> not seen it, you know, to just right. be, it's funny, Charlotte and I were just talking about this in the last, uh, in our last Mandalorian episode about like how I've had a negative reaction towards people who like in the filmmaking industry who have touted that 1977 because yeah. it's not something I could have ever had. But at the same time, I really want it, you know, to mm-hmm have entered that theater not knowing what was coming. It really is a paradigm shift in filmmaking. And you just see that in the you, that immediate response. It's not something that builds up. It was automatic when the film came out. Yeah, I, 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 I feel very lucky where my dad took me to the special edition opening so i technically saw star wars for the first time on the big screen i might have seen it like once on vhs as like a two-year-old or something but like my first real time of like understanding star wars was on a big screen and then a month later seeing empire and then a month later seeing jedi on the big screen more than that no matter when you see it no matter how you see it the characters all like i like i think c3 and r2d2 were like the the original people that like stuck out to me and then luke and han solo were like the original people that like i wanted to be like and I think no matter how you see it, whether it's on the DVD box set or on the big screen in 77 or in 97 or, you know, seeing the prequels for the first time, I think 
any way that Star Wars is presented and what we keep going back to that it, it feels so familiar, I think is the important piece, right? Like you see something crazy, you see something that you've never seen before, but even though you've never seen c 3 and R2-D2 bickering in a hallway, you feel like you have somehow. Like it, it's it's like an innate connection you have with Star Wars that I think even when kids are watching a movie made 40 years ago, it's still kind of happens again so it resonates the documentary spends a lot of time talking about how each star wars movie in the trilogy um it was so problematic to get made like they were they ran into all types of weather i think this is so funny about the documentary it's like (laughs) and we're back and you know we're filming empire strikes back we're all excited and we're hit with the worst snowstorm on record and like 30 (laughs) minutes before we're talking about a new hope it's like and we're hit with the the worst heat possible. Like it's always the worst, most extreme weather and, in history. In history, <laughs> and I feel like it's it's almost like you got to have the pain to get the solid product. Is like sometimes <laughs> how how it feels with Star Wars. And at the same time, so many of these like pain points and things that were going wrong is why certain things were invented, and the, the reason why we have such like amazing technological strides with Star Wars. Um, is because of like having to put out fires so to speak (laughs) of uh making things work and like you know appeasing george honestly (laughs) (laughs) putting out fires literally it reminds me of that scene i think it was from a new hope where the stormtrooper is on fire and they call cut and the guy runs over and has to put him out (laughs) 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 so literally putting out fires Yeah, I think the weather thing is so funny because, right, in A New Hope, they were talking about the horrible heat and everything. And then, of course, in the other great Star Wars documentary at the beginning, The Phantom Menace, in the same shooting location, right, has the worst sandstorm (laughs) ever. And it's just this complete full circle moment of why. (laughs) Well, that's why I think, because I love, I mean, we all love it, but like, I love seeing George in the volume and experiencing the Mandalorian. Cause I, that's like, we're talking about the effect the original trilogy had on movie making. And of course we could go another four hours on the effect that the prequel trilogy had on modern movie making, but then with the Mandalorian and what what they're able to do with the volume and that takes away any weather element, right? It allows Mm -hmm. them to create a space where it's not, cause I think George was, for better or for worse with a lot of the prequels, you know, people love to talk about the green screen or whatever it is. He shot a lot on location, but then the things that he did build set wise, or if they were just reacting to just a blue screen, I think was him reacting to these experiences that he had had in the past. And I think him being able to see the volume fully realized is like the next evolution of, of what he would have been doing anyway. Yeah. Um, for making movies. <laughs> George is like, if you had been there in 1998 and that sandstorm, you would build a green screen too. <laughs> no i think you're so right and they talked about that in the behind the scenes for the mandalorian on disney plus about i think i think it was bryce dallas howard who really uh spoke about this at length in that episode about the volume and she said i remember george george saw this he said about people being able to shoot films in their garage and this is what he was envisioning was the volume and I think this, mm-hmm. I, all of us on, on our two respective shows spend a lot of time talking about just how important this uh, technological aspect of Star Wars is and that how that is just as important what's going, like what's being developed behind the scenes as what we're actually seeing on screen. 
because it pushes forward so many things. And I'm really glad you brought up the volume because I think that is, again, it's cool to watch this now in 2020, having things like the sequel trilogy, all of these animated shows now, The Mandalorian, none of that was here. And something like The Mandalorian specifically really did take it to the next level. And everything that we see that comes out of the original trilogy, even like with Pixar, the Pixar computer that becomes involved too, or that gets created too, like that is taken, right? It's Pixar. We all know what that is. But you think of the volume and like John Favreau talking about how now other directors can use this too, because we've basically used the Mandalorian as a workshop to figure it out and to refine it and perfect it. And I think, is the I think the brain bar that they talk about with the volume is that new this season or were they doing that last season too I think they were doing it last season too okay I was gonna say like even this season I'm sure they're doing other refinements but talking about like the brain bar with people from ILM like on set changing the visual effects and everything like that it's like in real time it's completely next level I feel like the thing is is that my brain like physically can't process what technological strides were made in Star Wars. But all I know <laughs> is from <laughs> uh, a point of view of understanding how George Lucas works. And that is to like cut out the middleman, to get things done faster, to make sure that things are done in an almost an independent sense so that he can be virtually separated from any studio. He can do it all himself <laughs> and they can have like creative freedom. And of course I say this as like George Lucas says like, the person at the head and then all the the wonderful people at ILM who uh, developed this sort of technology. Um, but I think that it all comes from a place of being able to sep- like have this creative freedom, this ability to push the boundaries to to do things without the help of like the former studio system or like cha- yeah. change the way things were done before. I love that you said independent because I mean, in my mind, and I think it might be just completely true. Star Wars is one of the biggest independent movies of all time. Yes. And only the only one that's bigger that I can think of is Empire Strikes Back. And he like doubles down on what you're saying, being separate from the studio system, not allowing any notes, being his own person. And you even see the criticisms later on with the prequel trilogy. People are like, well, people should have told George not to do whatever, right? But like the reason that these movies are so successful and so long lasting is because it really is a singular vision of George Lucas wanting to do these things, sometimes barred by the time period. We know that he he didn't do this, the, uh, the prequel trilogy or the second trilogy. That's what, oh my God, the, thank you. For such, for, for such <laughs> a long time because he knew the technological um, disadvantages that he had. He couldn't do the clones, right? was why he didn't want to do the Clone Wars yet. And so you go all the way back to Star Wars and Empire especially – and he's able to kind of relegate a few key people, right? You have Joe Johnson being a right-hand man sort of for him. And then you have him being able to develop an entire community of like-minded filmmakers, which is what Francis Ford Coppola was trying to do with American Zoetrope, which really was not super successful in the long run in terms of commercial success. Mm-hmm. Um but but that idea of independent filmmaking continued throughout every single thing that George did. And then when you get to the ranch and you get to him then developing software and you get to him developing, you know, weird things to do for young indie that then lead to the prequel trilogy. You like you were saying earlier, the this the the stream of conscience that George Lucas has had has never changed and has never like uh differed. He has been the same George that he was filming. <laughs> 
you know, documentary footage for Francis Ford Coppola on a on a musical all the way up to to now. So so it's a it's a great journey to watch. It's totally comforting. <laughs> it is comforting, and I think comforting. You mentioning American Zoetrope is super interesting because I think George probably saw his friend Francis and saw him throughout his life being strapped by having a contractual obligation to do a movie he didn't want to do at all, The Godfather. And George was like, I don't want anything to do with that sort of contractual obligation. I want to tell my stories. And his entire life has been trying to free himself from a contract (laughs) in order to tell his own stories and to be the most independent. And I think he had to have these like moments in his life to, to view his friends and be like, that's actually not what I want to be doing. You're doing great friends, but that's not me. (laughs) (laughs) I I love it. I got to say that to kind of steer us back away from the technology for just a moment, the actual filming is just so fun to watch. I'm obsessed with the new hope clips of all of them and i think that it's you know and and this does go along with the with the discussion of the development of the technology for our new hope i think it's it's so fascinating to watch uh these two pieces right with the special effects and the filming of a new hope happening at the same time never shall the two meet and so no one is seeing what the other is doing and Charlotte says this a lot, but how it's a miracle that films get made. And it really is for A New Hope. And I think like the cast interviews for A New Hope, they're obviously just hilarious. (laughs) One of the ones that Charlotte and I used to say back and forth all the time was Mark Hamill talking about Chewbacca. And he's like, you know, you'd get these notes from the studio. They were so awful. And, you know, we're filming 12 hours a day. And the studio is making notes about if the Wookiee has pants. And he goes, We've, you've been in the garbage chute all day or the trash compactor all day. And the note here is about if the Wookiee needs like a pair of slacks or something. I I just think it's hilarious and about how, you know, them giving George a hard time and then reflecting later on about how they just like they really didn't get what was going through George's mind because he didn't talk. You you were just looking at a blue screen. You have no idea what you're really supposed to be looking at. Like it is insanity. And I just, I love how this documentary like tracks both of these things at the same time <laughs> until they finally come together with the actual premiere of A New Hope. Yeah, because I mean, they, the like you're saying, the actors have no idea and you can even see them joking around and stuff, not taking it seriously because they think that this is going to be some movie that no one is ever going to really see. It's going to flop. It's going to look bad. They might as well have fun while they're making it and not really understanding the impact that it'll have and even just how good it will look or sound or be until that premiere. And then it's interesting thinking about then, you know, Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and, and Carrie Fisher having to take it maybe a little more seriously with Empire Strikes Back, knowing that it worked the first time around. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing that they had to at least consider in a different way uh, moving into the sequels. I think it's so cool to think about, the difference in their in their approach specifically between a new hope and empire because now they've seen it they know like you said Brandon they know what what can show up on screen and it just it helps your imagination that much more and i think you know we've been talking about the mandalorian but the volume is even the next iteration of that um i think it's i think it's really fascinating and it reminds me of just how much i love the dynamics between mark and carrie and harrison 
especially knowing some of the things we know now. <laughs> I know. Which we didn't <laughs> this know documentary is like G rated in comparison to like right. all these books that we've read about, right. like what happens behind the scenes. And it's funny to watch this and be like, oh, wow, like there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens afterwards. Right. You know? <laughs> I love um, this documentary when the credits roll and they have a bunch of clips and. I, I think that the clips of like the bloopers and like the extended scenes and how they do things, even just like the switch of Han's gun on cloud yeah. city and everything. I don't know. There's just something that's so magical about seeing these behind the scenes shots. And also the documentary ends with, I think it's general Dodonna saying, may the force be with you at the end. I don't know if you guys stayed <laughs> for all the way through, but I find that kind of interesting. I'm just going to throw that out there. I, I, it makes me feel pretty good. Pretty happy. <laughs> is, is he the first one that says it in the movie or am I you oh. cut this out if I'm incorrect is oh. he the first person to ever say may the force be with you oh that's a really interesting question wow. that How I've never considered watch, <laughs> many of us watch this movie well, I don't know. <laughs> I've never seen it I might have seen it once <laughs> the only reason I'm saying that is because I, I think there is like in the original gold box Star Wars trivia Trivial Pursuit game I think that's a question and I think that's the only reason I know that is because it was a question in the Star Wars Wheel Pursuit game, but I could be again completely wrong, and if I am, I don't it is think you're wrong. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut it out completely. I'm gonna Google it. <laughs> no, may, okay, no, it was the very first thing. May the Force be with you is first uttered by General Dodonna before the Death Star battle in A New Hope. Wow, so that's why they include it in the end. We've cracked Amazing. it. Amazing. Wow, we did it. We, we cracked, cracked the code. code. Well, actually, also, Brandon cracked the code. So. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon knew it. We're just <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's a few elements. Because like I like to say that this is like, like if if Star if the original Star Wars is my favorite Star Wars movie, this might be my second favorite Star Wars movie just because of the familiarity I have with it. But there's a few things that I don't like about this movie, and oh. one of the things that I don't like is the very end. I'm glad we're talking about the very end right now. When he, I don't know what the exact line is, but it's the narrator going, and George Lucas made an empire of dreams. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect oh for my god! No. though, it's perfect for 2004. <laughs> um, it's so funny. That's hilarious. My favorite part about this whole discussion right here is that none of us knew this fun fact from the film itself, but rather Brandon pulling from trivia, Star Wars trivia pursuit question specifically. <laughs> And that's how unbelievably nebulous being a Star Wars fan is. It's like you can watch the movie, but then you have to learn all this other stuff afterwards. Like movies are like 5% of the Star Wars fandom for a lot of people. (laughs) What's that game, Charlotte, that you have where you have to put the scenes in order? And it's actually harder than you think it is. <laughs> I, I don't know what, what that is, but I don't remember what it is, but it's a recent trivia game and it's actually way harder than you think it's going to be. <laughs> you like pull a card and it's a, a screenshot from, I think it's, is it just a new hope? Uh, no, it's all. It's all of them. And you have to put, oh yeah, yeah. It's from the entire saga and you have to put them in order. And it's actually oh. really hard. Like the Attack of the Clones one really tripped me up. I was like, I can't, I can't sequence Attack of the Clones. It's like all over the place. Well, I mean, that's that's something that I've I've continued not to struggle with, but it's an interesting thing to think about, which is now, and this is more just open discussion. Like, how many times a month, let's say, do you watch a Star? Do you sit down and watch a Star Wars movie now? As a, as Three Star Wars podcasters, how often are y'all actually watching Star Wars? I know where this question is going, and the answer is not as often as one might think. Same. 
Same. Yeah. I think I might might watch one a month, maybe at this point. That's even more than me. Yeah. I think that at this point, it's but. like if there's new Star Wars, I'll watch it. I used to watch The Last Jedi all the time, and I haven't watched it in a really long time. That was like my – that felt like the most I was watching Star Wars when in like 2008, 2009, 2018, 2019. And since then, I haven't really rewatched a lot of it. I, when I was watching this documentary, I was like, I actually want to watch the original trilogy all the way through again. Yeah. It's been a really long time. Yeah. And when everyone has been posting like Return of the Jedi um, ending clips for the past like couple of days, yeah. I looked up the ending and I was like, oh, man, this is so, so joyous. Good. Like, I just need to watch this again because truth, the truth yeah. is the last time I watched this sequel, the, the uh, original trilogy was the first probably, trilogy. Yeah, the first trilogy. Yes, was probably with you can come back, uh, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was with Caitlin last year in November. Yeah, it's kind of messed up. One of our one of our last uh, trips, or yeah. one of my last trips. <laughs> it's just I feel like it just lives in our memories, though. Yeah, yeah, but that's also something that that I continually have to remind myself of, which is, let's say there is a recent Star Wars movie that I might not like as much as the other Star Wars movies, right? Let's just say. Yeah, let's but just say it. In order. Let, but in order for me to to make it feel like it's a Star Wars movie, I had to see it hundreds of times so that it feels like it's just in my memory. You know what I mean? Like, totally. And yeah. so it goes for people that don't like The Last Jedi. It goes for people that don't like Phantom Menace or whatever it is. But in order to have something feel like Star Wars to you, A, you probably have to be about 10 years old. But B, you have to like have familiarity with it, right? You can't see it once and then be like, I hated that. And then talk about it online without ever having to revisit it like i think there's an element of star wars whether it's the documentaries or the actual movies and we keep saying comfort over and over again star wars is comfort food to us and it's you have to give it a chance to be comfort food for you You can't just see it twice in a theater and be like all right i'm done with star with this with this (laughs) star wars but i've seen the other ones a hundred times and i don't have to see them every month to think about them you know what i mean so that's just me that's just me, old man Brandon, mostly to prequel haters who like, because like I have to be like, listen, like y- you saw it twice in a theater and hated Jar Jar Binks and never saw it again. I saw it every day when I was seven years old and it's Star Wars. So you can you can screw off. You know what I mean? So <laughs> Totally. Yeah, I feel like I had that experience when I got really obsessed with Revenge of the Sith in 2005. That was like really, I had seen Star Wars before, but Revenge of the Sith really like was it for me and i remember it to the point where i remember the day it came on dvd which is november 1st 2005 that like i we got that and (laughs) i watched that movie for three months every single day it was like i'd get home from school and i'd watch that movie and it was so committed to memory that it's like become part of my blood you know (laughs) and and it was like that was it was so sort of like weirdly ritualistic for me to like really have a movie that was my own that I felt like I I knew so well. And that was a really big part of becoming a Star Wars fan and like having that in within me, I suppose. And I right. think I think that it's 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 interesting because like I, I don't know when I stopped watching Revenge of the Sith, but honestly it's been a while. I guess I watched it recently after the Clone Wars. Yeah, we watched ended. it. We watched it in during the pandemic. Yeah, but like I don't watch quarantine. Quarantine. <laughs> yeah the pandemic it's, is still happening Caitlin. yeah i know i know I, and we're basically still quarantined so on, uh, we watched it in the first quarter of quarantine oh my gosh. <laughs> i sentence. think it's, i think 
Yeah. Uh, I think it's so interesting, Brandon, your discussion about like rewatching Star Wars and everything like that and aiming that towards second trilogy haters. And that's totally where I stood. But honestly, now I'm on the other side of it. And I'm like, I don't want to rewatch Tron. <laughs> <laughs> I just because I just, on the yeah. one hand I'm like yeah I need to rewatch these things to like you need to let Star Wars marinate inside your brain and your heart and sit with you and the rewatchability of Star Wars is what makes it so great and coming into yeah. things from a new perspective that's why like we love you know machete order of just like switching your view on things and that is really important and I We'll always say that if you don't like something in Star Wars, you should let it simmer and try again. You know what I mean? But it is kind of hard <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But no, it. I, I think that's yeah. I, yeah, I just I think it's it's such an interesting trajectory because I think you're I think you're so right, and that was always my view with like even coming into the podcasting space of people don't like the prequels let's talk about why you should and watch them again and give it another yeah. try. And oddly now I'm, I won't say I'm like, I mean, I don't like Tross. We all know that, but <laughs> I, I never <laughs> want to rain on someone else's parade. And it is something that I've seen more than once. Um, I don't know. I just think it's yeah. a, a really interesting discussion because I know like all of us here, we like wholeheartedly, obviously love Star Wars so much and it's still okay to have pieces of it that you don't love as much or that you even aren't rewatching as much. I don't know. I think it's such an interesting conversation because it all does live inside my heart, but some of it is takes up a bigger slice than other pieces of it. Yeah, that's totally fine. And some yeah. for some people that's also the behind the scenes documentaries. Yeah. And versus right. the films. And like that's super cool. Did I, too. Yeah, did I like did I like the Tross documentary more than Tross? Maybe. <laughs> did I also not like the Tross documentary? Oh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I so, both can I, be true at the same time. <laughs> I actively block out watching the Tross documentary. Because that was early quarantine. <laughs> And that was that was like the second week of quarantine. Yeah, not a yeah. good place. Not a good place to do that. I, and that might be more on me than the documentary. <laughs> do I, I mean, this is this is beside the point. I do remember because very early quarantine. That was a surprise. It was like Disney was being nice. Like surprise, we are dropping Tross early on iTunes. Here you go. And so I was like, well, I, I have it pre-ordered at Target, so I can get the Phil Showstack mini book or whatever. But let me order on iTunes right now just to watch the documentary. And then I watched it and then I watched it again. And I was like, okay. And then I remember though watching, I was, I remember walking around the block, which is all I've been able to do outside <laughs> for the past six months, listening to y'all's like oh, no. post Skywalker legacy <laughs> discussion, which is a very formative memory of my quarantine. But that's a different discussion. People can go, <laughs> people can go listen to that. But what I will say, and I, I tell the story a lot. And so if someone has heard me on a different podcast or something, but while we're talking about documentaries and while we're talking about everything, it is very helpful for me. And I'm in a very unique position with the show that I have and the opportunities that I have to talk to people where if someone worked on something that I didn't like, and then I'm able to talk to that person and be like, let's talk about this thing. I don't come at it antagonistically. I come at it more just like curiously. Um, but it does make me, I don't enjoy is the wrong word, right? Because I'm not watching Tross and be like, well, I love this movie now because I know these three people that are in it, you know, no, but, but it I helps. think it does. You understand it. Helps, it. it helps no matter what it is. Yeah. It mm -hmm. helps no matter what it is. Me understand something, whether it's like, even I just interviewed the guy that wrote the glove of Darth Vader book series, which is probably the worst star Wars book series ever written according to most people. Right. <laughs> 
But when you talk to him and he's passionate and he loves Star Wars and he's like, this is why I wrote it. I wrote it with my wife. I wanted to write something for my kids. Then you're like, okay. Like it might be, you know, objectively bad, but you weren't doing it to be harmful or to be hurtful to me as a fan. And that could be very different for certain different things that have happened (laughs) more recently. Yeah, totally agree with what you're saying. I feel like when you can hear someone's intent behind something, the respect for the 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 art grows. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think it should always be like that because I think as a as a person you come into a piece of art and then you, your reaction is your own and everything about your reaction is completely valid, right? But understanding how someone got from point A to point B to create the product that you're watching deepens my understanding of why I had that reaction and also why I like it and why I don't like it and yeah. why and it, in turn it makes me have more it was just like sort of paradoxical it makes me have more respect for what I am seeing even if I didn't necessarily like it and I think yeah. this is something Caitlin and I have been very honest about that we might not like a certain piece of Star Wars media but like the people that work on Star Wars have the, I have the most respect for because of the intent behind things, because of the hard work that goes into it. And we've spent, you know, we're talking, we're probably going to talk for like another 45 minutes about how amazing this behind the scenes documentary is. <laughs> and the truth is we love this documentary because it shows us how something that we love so much is made, is, is made and how many people it took to make such a beautiful piece of art. And I just feel like that's invaluable and I I feel like that's so awesome that you get to have that experience all the time, Brandon, when you when you get to interview people, because I think that even sometimes with newer Star Wars or something, when I have a certain reaction, be it negative or positive, and then there's no like behind the scenes or any like guide or anything. And I can't really right. understand what the purpose of that was. I'm just grasping at straws or guessing. And sometimes that's a really fun experience, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes I feel like I'm in the dark about my own reaction. And I feel like you bring up the Rise of Skywalker documentary. And I feel like that documentary, the latter half of it is very confusing to me, but I do feel like you see the certain intentions, how uh, amazing the, the artwork that goes into it is. And you can have the utmost respect for the people that worked on that and all the different people that um, come together to make that final product, even if you have a certain reaction to the final product. Yeah, I think you said like making a movie is a miracle, right? And especially yeah. as you go into modern modern movie making, how many people are actually working on something as big as a Star Wars movie or a Marvel movie or whatever it is. Is totally. Thousands of people. And then with Skywalker, I mean, again, we're, this is an Empire of Dreams podcast, but <laughs> with Skywalker, Skywalker Legacy, with some of the people, I was like, yes, good job. And some of the people, I was like, okay, I it helps me deepen my understanding of why you made that decision, even if that that reasoning was rather oh, incorrect. And we, I yeah. think we know <laughs> who we're talking about. <laughs> but, yeah. Right. But I think that's at least a very valuable tool. And like what you're saying, I think Disney Star Wars has been great in some regards, but we can all agree has been very closed off with how it presents behind the scenes things. And even I was just talking um, to Alden Diaz about this, where it sucks not having some of these things that we are so used to, right? With the prequels, we were very spoiled where every time we'd get a DVD release, you'd be like, surprise, here's the beginning. Here's within a minute. Here's from um, puppets to pixels. Here's Mm -hmm. a very feature length, intense thing that shows us not only the good things that have happened, but also the flaws. 
And I think starting with The Force Awakens and with the problems that production had that are well documented and we know like, oh, Harrison Ford got hurt and they shut down production. They had to fix script issues or whatever it was. But not, especially that first DVD release, not having anything, right? I think that was probably the barest bones Star Wars DVD release of all time was Mm -hmm. Force Awakens the first time around. Um, Kind of set the stage for now. Okay, they're not going to show us any Lord and Miller stuff for Solo, you know, and then getting something like Director and the Jedi feels like a miracle almost where Ryan was very purposeful because I think he grew up with things like this and he wanted to show the nuts and bolts of everything. And he was very proud of this documentary and he was very proud of showing the the pain that maybe Mark Hamill was feeling with how the character progressed. And it was very raw and very emotional. And I think more things like that as we progress throughout, you know, revisiting Star Wars and Disney over the past six, seven years will be invaluable for all of us, whether it's appreciating a story more or just understanding decisions that were made. And so I'm excited for for what's to come. Yeah. yeah. I think you just we all know that filming is hard. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> you know, talking about leak culture and spoilers and and obviously the changing directors and writers and things like that, that's all publicized. You know, it's not it's not a secret. And so to not have that opportunity as a fan base who is invested in that kind of stuff to just understand it, to see it in process, to see wow, these are all the speed bumps and we still got here in the end. That's what's so incredible. That's what we're all talking about with A New Hope, right? Like there were so many speed right. bumps and the end product was this beautiful thing of A New Hope and not having that kind of mirrored, uh, like we've been talking about in, you know, mostly in the sequel trilogy has been disappointing for a lot of us, I think. And like you said, Brendan, the, the director and the Jedi is such a gift and so surprising and really does stand on the shoulders of the beginning as these very honest, (laughs) uh, I think the beginning is probably even more honest than Empire of Dreams (laughs) um, about just how difficult and arduous the process of filmmaking is. Because I think that's George's approach to it too, right? (laughs) Of, you know, I think it was Harrison in this thing about talking about how George likes people, but he also doesn't. And (laughs) (laughs) it just, it it makes it a hard environment, but the vision is so strong and so there. And and I think the thing we've been talking about the past couple of minutes is about this idea of decision-making and this is so tied into George. And I think this is something that I've always said about the second trilogy, the prequels is that even if I don't, like the decision, I know that there was one from George. And that gives me a level of comfort, even if I didn't like the outcome, to know that he was overseeing all of these things. And like we've been saying, this is a single vision from George Lucas. Obviously, right there, thousands of people involved, but everything gets his, you know, his um, stamp of approval, his mark of approval. Um, And that is, I think that's really important. And that talking about the Rise of Skywalker documentary, I can see the people who had strong vision and the people who didn't. (laughs) And to me, that is really clear in that documentary. And uh, and then also the decisions that I didn't like, that's clear too. (laughs) I just, I think it's so interesting, the approach to these different filmmakers. And one of the things that Carrie Fisher actually said about George in this documentary was about how he had strong vision, which I've only ever heard her say that about Ryan Johnson too in The Last Jedi 
documentary about how he has a strong Mm -hmm. vision. And she said the same thing about George. And I think that's very interesting when we look at the physical product of something like the DVD behind the scenes features (laughs) and what comes out of them of George really wanting to take us through the whole filmmaking process. And the thing that everyone talks about is in Revenge of the Sith of them having the camera on set, right? And how that is, you know, unheard of would never happen these days. Uh, And then, you know, Ryan taking us through that really hard conversation with Mark Hamill and Mark Hamill saying no (laughs) to Ryan Johnson's ideas about what should happen with Luke. That vulnerability is for hardcore fans like us. That's so important because Star Wars sees us like it's comfort food to us because it sees us through hard times. And so to also see the hard times that these filmmakers go through in the filmmaking process, that's also really valuable as a fan to see like, I care about this so much and so do you. And I can see that in X, Y, and Z because I can't be there. (laughs) Okay. Brandon, I was wondering, you've interviewed so many greats in Star Wars. And I was wondering, on the subject of technological advances, have there been anything that you've learned that surprised you in your interviews um, about the production of Star Wars? Yeah. I I mean, because again... My reference points for making of Star Wars are documentaries like this or the Rinsler books or just things that I've read online. And so being able to actually talk to these people. And I'm very lucky when I was rewatching this for this podcast, I was getting like not emotional is the wrong. I mean, I was getting emotional (laughs) because so many of the people that I grew up watching this over and over again, I've now been able to talk to, which is why like it's wild and i feel just very blessed and like just honored to have talked to murin and lauren peterson and phil tip and all these guys um and so when they show up i'm like oh like i i was on a skype call with you for for an hour like that's you know tell that to 12 year old brandon uh but the things that i've taken away that you know because a lot of the times now you're, you're 40 years later and we hear mark hamill tell the same you know uh, audition story we hear you know uh, Anthony Daniels tell the same story about the McCoy painting. You know, we've heard these stories. And so whenever I'm able to hear something different, I really just kind of latch onto it and, and feel kind of blessed that I heard that. And so with Bruce Nicholson, uh, who won an Academy Award for Empire, um, his conversation about how hard it was to actually film the Hoth battle, especially stands out to me because it's, it's easy to forget, you know, you go from Star Wars, which is a technical Marvel to then Empire, which immediately, with, a, it, with it being white on white, right? You're on Hoth. You have gray and white looking ships fighting each other. That level of compositing detail, right? You see it in, in movies even later on, past 1980, with the matte lines especially kind of um, being very distracting when you go and watch an old movie now. But they were so careful and so precise with how they masked out those matte lines uh, I think they called it like the Norway filter and it was a very specific way that Bruce Nicholson did it in order to kind of blur it and to match it to their actual filming location. And that's why he he won a special achievement award <laughs> for doing it uh, was, was a really cool thing to hear. Uh, and then talking to Phil Tippett specifically about go motion, which was effectively used in, in Hoth, especially with AT-ATs and with Tauntauns. Um, both, both are, are stories that I love Phil Tippett talking about because we're we're very aware of stop motion and that can look jarring right you go and watch a Harryhausen movie now and it's incredible and you're like wow like I can't believe they did it at this time in 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 history but it is like you're like okay that's not like super believable but if you go watch the 8080s now you go watch the Tauntauns now there's an added level of realism that go motion provided which was 
um, taking the effect that the Dijkstra had, right, which was motion control, but applying it to puppet rods and making it more of a, a seamless thing that made it feel more um, alive. And I think both Go Motion and then the mat lines talking to these people have, have kind of stayed with me. And as I watch Empire again, I've always, I'm like, oh, like, did you know this? And like, yeah, always when I when when I bring it up again, yeah, yeah, I that's think super that's super cool. Yeah, I think that's what's really cool about your show, Brandon, is like you said, getting to hear these stories that are new. Because I, you know, at the top of the show, I was like, I can quote a lot of this documentary, and it's because I watched the documentary a lot when I was younger, but also because I've heard these stories a lot too. I think Carrie Fisher is about giving. George Lucas a couple of bucks every time she looks in the mirror. Yeah. You know, I like if she had a dollar for every time she said that, she'd break even. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I just and I love it. I think it's hilarious, but I can quote it for a couple of different reasons. So I think I think that's a really cool thing about your show is really just getting to see these different aspects and these things we haven't heard about before with Star Wars and really dig in to you know, all the nitty gritty because it is interesting and it is we, – we talk about George's strong vision and stuff like that, but George didn't make the Norway filter, you know, and that's right. really important. And there are so many incredible people involved at so many levels that are pushing the envelope in really big and important ways. Yeah, and I mean, it's definitely a challenge too because like what you're saying, I know these stories and so sometimes I can feel myself leading on to hear a story that I know exists, you know? Yeah. And so it's it's tough to to try to pull something new when I feel like something is not new, right? Yeah, you know, right. or I feel like, oh, maybe everyone already knows this. And so that, I mean, that's just nitty gritty podcast stuff, but I think it goes beyond that. Like what we're, what you're saying and with how available, especially the main trio has been over the past 40 years and hearing these stories, I think too, I don't know if you guys ever watched it, the AFI, um, (laughs) uh, it was like, it was like, uh, what's the word? Like mandatory viewing. Cause it was, it was like, I think it was Lucas and Harrison and John Williams and Spielberg all within like four years of them televising those. It was the best ever. You would hear the same, you would hear the same stories. You would hear the, the Pez dispenser story from Carrie. You would hear the audition story from Mark. You'd hear the, you can say this shit, but you can't, you can type it, but you can't say it. Yeah. All these things, right. That we, but the, cause they have them and then they go to conventions and you see Carrie in person, you see Mark in person and they tell the same thing and everyone claps. And so it's kind of like a, it's, it's part of the mythology of star Wars even beyond it. And I, it again is very comforting. But there's a part of me that's like, oh, I want I want something even deeper than that now. And I wonder if we will ever get it for a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Before we move into the next part, I do have to ask just like a fun question. So out of all three Star Wars films, if you could be there on the day of filming, what like what sequence would you want to watch be filmed? Why don't you start, Caitlin? Um well, I didn't really want to start. Okay. <laughs> I actually, I kind of think I would want to do Return of the Jedi, the Sand Barge. I want to see that whole thing play out. I love that sequence. <laughs> That's what I would want to see. I'd want to be on Jabba's barge, like looking out one of the windows where I'm not on film, but I'm still there. I'm still in it. <laughs> You're still there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would want to say that I was on set for the Obi-Wan killed your father line read. Mm-hmm. 
And to have that like as a, a badge of honor of like, oh, yeah, I carried with me that Obi-Wan killed Luke's father. And then to like be in the in the movie theater and being like, oh, my God, I got totally duped. What <laughs> would be so exciting. <laughs> I, y'all's are making because I was like, oh, I have my, I have my answer, and I was excited to say it, but now I feel stupid. No, no, which no. Say my it. answer is when when uh, Henson and the Muppets visited Dagobah, and you have all those great <laughs> photos of Kermit and Miss Piggy with Yoda and Mark Hamill. Okay. And I think that'd just be so much fun to be there. That would that's actually that's the really, best one. Yeah, that's a really great answer. That's fun. That's like for what yours is more on point because yours is for what is happening behind the scenes rather than what is actually happening on camera. So. Exactly. You, you win for being on theme. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are we ready to move on to part three? Yes. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Okay. So welcome to part three. Where we're talking about the Star Wars reaction. And I think we have to start with this question. Do we buy the narrative that no one knew Star Wars was going to be a hit? the answer changes every day i think it i think i buy it i think there are narratives about the making of star wars that i do not buy which we can discuss but i think just even hearing these people talk about it and seeing the stuff on set with the first one i think after that then they can you know whatever but i think the first one they all had their own unique experiences whether it was filming at l street or filming in the desert or filming in a warehouse in van nuys and not knowing what the finalized product would be. And I think the only people that really knew that it was going to work are the people like Steven Spielberg who got to see the final cut with John Williams' music and some special effects and know that it was possible that this all came together. Because otherwise, like, how would you how would you know? Like, even probably reading the script and, like, even seeing the drafts of the script before, it's not gibberish is the wrong word, but, like, it's hard to visualize. You know what I mean? And so... I think it's it's very tough, especially for a Mark Hamill or a Harrison Ford to be like, oh, and now there's a space battle, but they had a guy shaking the cockpit for five days, and that's it. And so I buy I buy it, uh, but there are other narratives that I, I do not buy. My I love how Steven Spielberg, even before he saw the final cut, he just always maintains that I knew it was going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> he just, and I don't know if I believe him, but maybe I do. <laughs> He's just a supportive friend, okay? He, I think that's <laughs> it. I'm like, what What reason would Steven Spielberg have to lie? Like, there's no, because there's a, like we were talking about earlier, there's an element of the cool factor, right? There's an element of like, oh, like I saw Star Wars in 1977, right? And so there's an element of like Steven Spielberg knowing Star Wars was going to be cool, but also he's Steven Spielberg. Like, he doesn't need to like have geek Crew, cred, yeah. you know? <laughs> that's very true. So, I don't know. Totally. <laughs> I personally think that some people working on it knew about like the creativity behind George Lucas and they were like this is going to be a really interesting movie I'm eager to work on this because we are pushing the boundaries I like what George has to say about where the story comes from in like a mythic sense I'm talking about like Carrie Fisher because I honestly feel like she knew I feel like she was like attracted to the source material and like even though she you know joke she joked about everything i think that she is such a brilliant mind that she reacted to it in a way of being like oh no this could be interesting like i was princess leia i knew, i am so happy to have this part and i think this part is really cool but i think that to your point brandon i feel like people didn't actually understand how much of a success it was going to be a good movie yes a cool movie yes maybe like a cult classic but not necessarily 
the biggest movie ever. Uh, I, I was going to just bring up the, the narrative that I do not believe, which is that Star Wars was planned out, at least initially, mm. is my like, conspiracy theory. Right. Because I think there are parts that were. I think that there are some that were not. I don't think that Luke and Leia were always meant to be siblings. I think that maybe in the back of Luke's mind that he wanted Vader to be Luke's father, but I don't super buy that even because mm-hmm. I was really I mean like even if you view it how he was making this movie which was one at a time like I don't think he would even let himself think beyond I think he created like kind of like Tolkien is very infamous for creating a language and then creating Lord of the Rings around it you know and having an idea of a world before actually telling the story within that world and I think Lucas is a great example of that where he had a general story idea he knew the characters and he knew the the galaxy he wanted to build but he might not necessarily have known like the detailed plot points up until a certain point i think after 1983 he knew everything up to the sequel trilogy but that's just my personal conspiracy theory i don't know if if y'all agree or disagree i don't necessarily think it's a conspiracy theory because i think it's backed up by a lot of those drafts about like really not committing to the Luke and Leia relationship, whether Vader Vader was Luke's father or if there was another person involved or like who was Anakin, was Anakin the brother, was Anakin the father, all these things, right? And I think that um, – I think at the core where I come down on that is that whether or not George Lucas knew that Vader was going to be Luke's father, I think that he always um, – in a mythic sense, drew upon the idea of the antagonism between Vader and Luke being like pushing Luke in a almost a a way that is like almost like mythically parental. And then I didn't know if he he I don't think he personally knew if he was going to actually commit all the way um, for that. And I think that I think that it's hard because I think that actually he will say otherwise, being like I. I planned it all out. Like I knew this, I knew that. And I think that there are things that he did know. And I think that the Tolkien example is actually perfect because I don't think I've really thought about it that way, at least like not a lot, because I do think that he had certain characters in mind and everything, but their relationships were just not super defined. And it was up to the story that was going to present itself each movie that would define those relationships. Yeah. I think it's kind of like both can be true situation because we have him in 1975 saying, I knew I had to protect the other two films that were going to be made. And so he's he's got to have something there, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Which I think is really interesting. But I, I think I have always thought that the original trilogy and even this uh, prequel trilogy to a certain extent was made in a similar way that I thought the sequel trilogy was made and that – you know, like taking the character of Kylo Ren, for example, it was like, he's going to start here. He's going to get redeemed by the end of it. We can fill in the smaller details as we go. But these were our big plot structures. And I I still kind of believe that for the sequel trilogy. But I, I think that that, to a certain extent, was what George knew going in. But then... But then I'm not sure because <laughs> we look at these different drafts and there are so many different versions of these characters and and of these early uh, story beats. You know, even calling, even naming Luke, Luke Starkiller is a very different 
kind of tone than Luke Skywalker. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's it's such an interesting discussion, and George has told it a hundred different ways. It's funny we talk about like the cast needing new stories. George has new stories. He just says it a different way every time he's interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's something really funny about how we can be like because I think there's all of these things can actually be all true at the same time. Like he knew some parts, but not all of it. And I think the actual commitment to the vision of being like the first one I made was always going to be the fourth one. I always like I don't it sits with me weird. I sometimes believe him sometimes don't. I like can't even imagine a brain that works that way. And I think that's where I stumble a little bit. And I'm kind of in awe of that idea about like I'm going to start here in the middle of the story always um, that I just I'm. Do I believe it? Do I think it's a work of genius? All these things at once, I'm not so sure, you know? I I think that's a great point, even beyond Vader or beyond the siblings or whatever it is. Because you think about the first time that episode four is even like introduced in the the nomenclature of Star Wars, which is the re-release leading up to episode five, right? And so it's almost like what we're talking about. He has a chance to think and a chance to breathe and a chance to be like, okay, Star Wars is a success. I can do more. So then he's maybe able to place it where he knows stories that he wants to tell before and after. You know what I mean? Because I think there's an element of it that is like, this is very serialized. This is very, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, which has episodes, which has this kind of idea behind it. But that was, if you watch the opening crawl, the quote unquote despecialized edition does not have that episode four until the re-release leading up to the release of Empire. So I don't know. I, I think the the myth making behind George Lucas, I love, obviously, and we all love, and that's why we're doing <laughs> these shows. Uh, but I do think it's been interesting seeing Lucasfilm and George himself build it as he goes, you know? so Yeah. And I think, too, you also have to go back to what we were talking about at the very top of the show with the Joseph Campbell of it all, of being a student of Joseph Campbell and immersing himself in – you know, the hero with a thousand faces and this other mythology from other places, like those stories, the details in those stories change a lot all the time, depending on which culture is telling them as well. And that's like the whole point of the hero with a thousand faces, right? But right. like if George doesn't have these these decisions all concrete in his head, it doesn't matter because he knows how like what pieces he can move around to still make the story work from the template that he's working from or from the mythology that he's working from and I don't think that that's something I really think about as much when we're having this question of what did George know what did he not what is a lie what is truth (laughs) with the creation of Star Wars is that with with the the template of mythology you can go in a lot of different directions and it's still going to work because you're still hitting the same character beats for a character to grow through the hero's journey. They can go into the special world. Like, you know, they're going to go into the special world, but it can look like a million different things. And as long as you know, that's where you're going and, you know, act two or whatever, you have some wiggle room to work with. I feel like this all comes from the place of the scenes in the Empire of Dreams documentary of like people lining up on Hollywood Boulevard at the Grauman's Chinese Theater waiting to watch Star Wars. I don't know. I feel like this this documentary fills me with such warm fuzzies because I can never get enough of the stories of people being surprised and overwhelmed by the success of Star Wars. Yeah. 
I love it. I love to see these yeah. these shots of all these people, of people being so pumped about the handprints and like yeah, that's the, what I, I love this yeah, the stories <laughs> of like the international um screenings and like the one that they talk about uh in Japan where there's silence afterwards and how that was like a sign of utmost respect and there's even a story I can't remember who it's from um about before the movie came out uh it kind of made me tear up a little bit one of the execs I think watched a rough cut of it without the music and when he went back um to dinner with his family he was like I just want he told his family I just want to remember this day for the rest of my life because I just saw something so incredible and it completely changed my life and I feel like it was it's those kind of stories to me like make me tear up and like make me feel really emotional because I feel like we've all gotten caught up in a certain sense of excitement about Star Wars in that way, whether it was in 1977 or it was watching Star Wars for the first time and being like, I want to remember this day for the rest of my life because that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And to hear all these different people, like old, young, of all different time periods come together and be like, no, this was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It's it's just so joyous. <laughs> yeah. I even love because there's the story and it's not even in Empire of Dreams, but of Marsha and of George having lunch at Hamburger Hamlet across the street yes. from the theater and and being like, what's that line for? And it's for Star Wars. And then when I went to L.A. for the first time as a 15 year old, I, we went I mean, we walked by the Chinese theater and I saw the, the handprints. And then I was like, Mom, we're going to Hamburger <laughs> Hamlet, which is close. It was across the street. And I was like, here's where it was. And I was trying to explain it. And obviously that, that did not like, no one cared. But it, it is just like this, again, mythologizing and myth-making of George Lucas and of the making of these movies. It's important to realize the reaction to it, like what this part is all about. And, and then after it's released, after it's made, how people held on to it. And I think, I mean, we're talking about something that happened 40 years ago. Um, as if it, it happened right now. And I think that more than anything, you can't, I can't think of another example of pop culture that has had that kind of lasting power. No, I really, there really is nothing else like Star Wars. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that's, that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> that's it. That's all folks. <laughs> I do. The thing about this whole section of, of actually, of Star Wars actually coming out is that, you know, George Lucas's life, the whole creation of Star Wars, his feelings about Hollywood, all of it together, it, it is its own movie. It feels like its own film and plot that we're watching of this scrappy young guy, you know, goes against the grain and everything in Hollywood. Then he becomes the next biggest thing in Hollywood. And, you know, from the highest of highs with uh, Star Wars and its success also comes these really, really low moments for George, too, of, you know, depression. He is in the hospital a number of times. He gets divorced. And I just there's this almost like this balance in a weird way. And I don't mean to look at George's life as like a film because he's obviously a real person and these were very hard times for him. But I, it is really fascinating looking at these extreme moments in his life happening on top of each other. And I think that that all happening in the midst of this time period of like unparalleled success is, is kind of crazy, honestly. 
Yeah, and I think even beyond that, because the last eight minutes of this documentary go through like 20 <laughs> additional yeah. years of Lucas and Lucasfilm <laughs> history, which I think is very funny because I would love, I mean, a key takeaway of all of this is I, I love the beginning. I love um, within a minute. I love Puppets to Pixels, but I would love just like a, a overall documentary for the prequel trilogy and, mm-hmm. and that creation. I think that would be incredible. Um, but you go and you think about George taking that break from 1983 to then really not making a movie until 1995, 1996, when he starts production on on episode one. And that 10 years is a time for him to, I think, mourn and take a step back and realize what he had lost and what, what might've happened. And he focused on raising his kids, right? And you have all these outputs coming from him wanting to make his kids happy. You have the Ewok movies coming because Amanda loved the Ewoks, right? And you, you see him take a step back and become a father um, and then while he's taking that step back and not directing anything, he's producing all these incredible things that we're not looking at 20, 30 years later, knowing that that set the course for movies, right? You, you have Pixar, you have Industrial Light and Magic doing the, the first computer generated effects. And then you have him kind of behind the scenes spearheading all of that. Um, and I think Lucas Arts is a, a big component of that, that we don't think about anymore, but he's leading the revolution of, of video games and how we can really think about that. Um, and I think all of that combined is this, again, myth-making of George um, that kind of came from that loss and that balance, like you're saying. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it is. It is just – it's honestly so fascinating that he even did come back to it thinking about – you know, you have that kind of success and it's like, that's not going to happen again. I – you know, the idea of like, you know, the sequel isn't usually it's like the sequel isn't better than the original. <laughs> Irving Kirshner even says that. Yeah. Like yeah. You make a sequel and it's just a sequel. <laughs> and then and then to even do like a sequel to a trilogy already, like that's kind of that's kind of crazy. And knowing how many hardships he did go through and and how the actual process of filmmaking and being on set with actors and stuff like that, that's that's not his favorite part. But I think that just goes to show his dedication to the story he wanted to tell. And I think in this like narrative and mythology of these people that as a fan base, we've kind of created, I think sometimes people can see George as this grumpy guy who, you know, he obviously had a reaction to people having a negative reaction to the prequels. Right. And um, what was it at celebration last year? at the Phantom Menace panel when he was like, you guys are the real fans who are here at the yeah, Phantom Menace. My, it's my favorite movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this tongue in teeth. And the dishes are going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's possibly in an airport stranded from a snowstorm. It never who really knows? became clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, like, it's kind of crazy how he ended up coming back to it knowing all of the hardship that there was going to be and the fact that it might not be as successful as the original trilogy was, but feeling a sense of responsibility to tell this story and even just wanting to tell it. I don't know. I think like we've been talking about the psyche of George Lucas is a very interesting one and his passion and dedication. And as we said, his consistency quite literally has stood the test of time. Definitely. And I feel like all a lot of that, not all of it, but a, a huge amount of it is because George secured the merchandising rights um, for Star Wars and like the longevity of merchandising feeds into the longstanding reaction to Star Wars. But also, I think that this documentary, something that's so charming about this is that I like that it, it talks about the empty box box campaign for Christmas. Yeah. Um, 
Because I feel like that would be something that I wouldn't necessarily want to talk about because it feels like a little bit of a failure to produce. <laughs> but because <laughs> like I can't imagine a documentary being like um, about the Mandalorian and how they produced no Baby Yoda merch last year for Christmas. Yet <laughs> their solution was brilliant. You know, the empty box uh, campaign for buying merch for Star Wars and getting a toy later. And, you know, you open up a box that's blank. It's so funny and amazing. And I feel like it really that really sums up the Star Wars craze, in my opinion. I, I mean, I do think, again, the, this documentary more than most pieces of Star Wars media leading up to that point kind of canonizes like the Star Wars story in a certain way, which is very yeah. interesting and, and in a way that also has holes, right? And I, I mentioned it in the show notes and it's something that I'm very passionate about bringing especially Marsha Lucas's involvement with Star Wars to, to bigger light because it is so undervalued, I think, with, with Star Wars for obvious reasons, right? If you are in charge of a, of a giant corporation and a, and a saga, you, you don't super want your divorced wife you know, having too much credit for it. Right, but I think yeah. the Empire of Dreams kind of glosses over her a little bit uh, and then really doesn't bring her up again until, until the divorce itself. Um, but things like that or things like the Empty Box campaign, things that we can talk about without really even having to reference anything because we just know it like yeah. comfort food is part of what this documentary is doing for better or for worse and mostly mostly 99% for better but it is interesting the the stories that have been told over and over again have kind of created the tapestry of what we think of as Star Wars behind the scenes and there's so many more stories that haven't been told or that are told in a different way or or that have been kind of told over the years and, and evolved um, and I think that's just kind of part of being a Star Wars fan and part of enjoying it so yeah that and that's totally the thing about history too it's like it's important to read what is being written but also read between the lines of what is not being written too and who's being left out of of the history and i think marcia is the example in this and uh, again the the most anticipated book that i have is coming out spring 2021 which is the howard kazangian who's a big feature in this documentary it's his biography written by jw rensler but Marsha was interviewed for the book and apparently talks a ton and also talks about her experiences with the sequel trilogy and what she thought about them. What? And so like, oh, yeah, know. like it's, it's going to be crazy. It's like, it's like event <laughs> reading. Like I really cannot wait uh, to, to read it because her involvement with the saga is so understated uh, almost to like a, a criminal fault. Uh, and then I think, I would love to hear more about her experiences with, with the prequels, right? Because so many of her friends and so many of the people that she worked with, whether it was Ben Burt, then editing the, the prequels, right. And then seeing the sequel trilogy without George and seeing kind of something that they worked on together and kind of collaborated on together, not even involve either of them anymore, I think would be a very interesting juxtaposition. So again, That'll that'll be spring twenty twenty one. You'll know where to find me. Yeah, is there a date? The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I'd have to look because I I I mean I I emailed Rensler. I was like, FYI, like if you ever like <laughs> want to come on and talk about it, and he was like, Yeah, we'll talk in the spring. I was like, Great, okay, um, sure. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> That's you, awesome. I can't wait for that. Yeah, I'm really excited yeah. now. <laughs> you mentioned, and it's something we haven't really talked a lot about 
today we have all of us have at length in other scenarios but this podcast episode about the sound of star wars and john williams and ben burt and i know that you are a huge huge ben burt fan (laughs) <laughs> he's yeah. he, he's your number one isn't he like for your interview list yeah, yeah. he's my number one gettable one because marcia is my number one but she would never do a star wars podcast you <laughs> so, never but know. Ben is, uh, yeah I, I guess you do know <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always said I've, I've always said that mar if i ever got marcia it would be the last episode of the podcast like even more than george because like what would you talk to george about right like what would you even like you like like George, like, what was it like making Star Wars? Like, who cares? <laughs> like, you know, it'd be cool. Um, but yeah, Ben is Ben is or Mr. Burt, I should say, in case he's listening and is like, wow, this guy like didn't didn't say Mr. Burt. <laughs> Mr. Burt enough. <laughs> uh, is like you think about the pantheon of like who made Star Wars possible, right? And we talked about Joe Johnston and Industrial Light and Magic, and then of course Ralph McQuarrie kind of setting the tone and what Star Wars looks like. But then you have John Williams and you have Ben Burt kind of as those four, with then Marsha editing it all together, kind of creating the like the Mount Rushmore of what Star Wars um, success looks like, really. Uh, and so yeah, Ben's and his soundscapes are like incredible. And what he did, and I think it's called like an organic soundtrack is what they refer to it in the documentary. Yeah. And like kind of set me on a whole different path to um, because yeah, his work is like genius level, almost at the same level as, as George's. Yeah. I think that there's something so cool about Star Wars and how there's all these different geniuses working together for one final genius project, um, <laughs> with, with George, with Ben Burt, with John Williams, all these different layers. And like, of course the actors and ILM and every, everyone that we've mentioned and haven't mentioned too just all these different levels of genius all working together. But I do totally agree with you that Star Wars would be a totally different place if it didn't have Ben Burt and like the soundscapes that he invented. When I was a kid, I loved this part about, I loved this part in the documentary where um, Ben Burt, I feel like I can hear him say beeps and boops in my ear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> I think we all can. Yeah. And just like that shot of him, like on like power lines, like striking a power line yeah. and everything. You're like, wow, that's <laughs> so cool. Who knew that made that sound? And I, I feel like that is just so imaginative. And it really like made me think outside of the box, for lack of a better term, when it comes to creating a soundscape. And it's actually one of my favorite behind the scenes pieces of Star Wars in general. Anytime I can hear about sound design. Um, because I think it's an often overlooked piece of what makes Star Wars Star Wars and what makes it so interesting and why we have such a great reaction to it. And it really is because the wizards behind the scenes are working so hard to um, create an amazing soundscape. That fits, especially now, that fits into the foundation that was laid by Ben Burt. Totally. And yeah. that's not and, easy. Yeah. It's not easy, although like the Mandalorian has been incredible with the soundscapes. And even when we talked to Blast Points uh, last week about the the chase sequence with the X Wings, yeah, uh, in the Mandalorian, that soundscape is is very prevalent. You know, it's a very Ben Burt thing. And then if you look at the credits for the Mandalorian, Ben Burt obviously is kind of semi retired or retired completely, but Benjamin A. Burt, his son, who Ooh. works at Skywalker yeah. Sound has been working on the Mandalorian, which is like, I'm like, wow, what a great, what a great thing to see. And then also Jet Lucas, 
is working on the Mandalorian as well uh, in the visual effects department. So um, got some nice familial connections kind of carrying that legacy, which I think is is super important as we move forward with Star Wars. I'm kind of shook by this Jet Lucas knowledge, to be honest. I'm going to have to sit with that for a little bit. uh, (laughs) He was a, I think he was like a PA on the first season. And then the second season I noticed he he's like listed as a visual effects coordinator or something like that. I could be completely wrong. And if I am just cut this out completely, but he is in there and that's pretty cool. It's so uh, awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Zet, Juca- Zet Jukasa himself is, is uh, <laughs> He survived. Yeah. He's here. <laughs> <laughs> he made it. He made it. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, people like Ben Bird, they, they create the calling cards for George. And I think that's, or for Star Wars, for George, obviously, but for Star Wars, <laughs> just for George he's the only one watching but I think that that's that's one of the hallmarks of Star Wars is that that you know that Star Wars feeling but it's also that Star Wars sound that Star Wars look it all comes together and the fact that we all know what a lightsaber sounds like and it's a lightsaber it, you, you don't hear it anywhere else it doesn't exist anywhere else except for in a galaxy far far away and what R2-D2 sounds like 3PO, the ships, everything. It belongs in Star Wars and nowhere else. And I think that is just another example of all of these layers. Like the whole creation of Star Wars, A New Hope, in a way is very piecemeal, especially A New Hope, because like I said earlier, no one knew what each other was doing. (laughs) And then it all just kind of (laughs) magically comes together. And I think that, you know, this, I think that Ben Burt is like, honestly, one of the best examples of that because you're recording the most random things. And it's like, this is going to be R2-D2, a baby, and like a walrus or whatever he was recording to for R2-D2. It just, it all comes together somehow. And now we have R2-D2, who we all know, you know, we know what he sounds like. Yeah. I love this documentary so much. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) As we kind of wrap up, um, Brandon, are there any other tidbits from the Empire of Dreams documentary that almost like a parting shot that you haven't gotten to shout out about this documentary before we wrap up. Uh, no, no major shout outs. I think, uh, brief things. Uh, every time Irvin Kirshner talks, I like, I just like want to like keep it within me. And if I was like a little, uh, more inebriated tonight, I would probably try a Irvin Kirshner. <laughs> impression. Oh. I just, it's, it is like, it's like the most joyous, Maybe if you ever find me at Celebration 2022, that's the time for me to like try my Irvin Kirshner because uh, I just love every time he talks and seeing his little like R2-D2 cookie jar in the background <laughs> is just like the purest thing. Um, but that's pretty much it. Like, again, I would love to see a prequel version of this even beyond what we've already gotten. And then I can't even imagine in 20 years getting something like this for the Disney Star Wars uh, trilogy because... That would just be that would just be awesome. Be so, so cool. um, yeah. I mean, it's the gold. This is the gold standard of of what Star Wars documentaries or even movie documentaries can be. The only thing that compares is the Lord of the Rings appendices, and that's unedited. That's pretty much like piecemeal kind of stuff. Um, but it's more the length of this, especially two and a half hours, is almost longer than any Star Wars movie. Period. Right. Mm-hmm, and so yeah. I think it's just an incredible thing that we we got, and the testament to to George Lucas wanting people to understand the process. So it's really good. It's really good. You guys, (laughs) it's really good. And I would like to see it for the second trilogy and the third trilogy, please. And thank you. (laughs) 
All right. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for being on. We loved getting to chat with you. And as is tradition, as you know, we have reached the end of our time, which means we get to ask you, our guests, the Sky Talkers Star Wars dinner question. So, Brandon, who would you like to have at your Star Wars dinner party? <laughs> uh, okay. It, it's five. Right? Yes, five. five. Yeah. And the goal is good conversation. Okay. Goal is good conversation. Okay. So, if people are tracking this conversation, they should be able to guess a couple <laughs> of of the people. Uh, and I, I kept it all behind the scenes people where right? I didn't mix and match. I'm a little boring. I'm a little basic. But here, here's the five, and then I'll explain my reasoning, if that's okay. Um, Marsha Lucas, Ben Burt, Ralph McQuarrie, Doug Chang, Ryan Johnson would be my five. The- this is an like you've really hit as we were talking about like the pillars of Star Wars creation. You've hit like every department, <laughs> truly. Well, okay. Let me let me. So with uh, Ralph McQuarrie and Doug Chang, they've met briefly before Ralph passed away. Um, before the before the prequel trilogy began, um, and I'm sure they communicated throughout the design of the prequel trilogy, but the prequels and the original trilogy, how differently they're designed, I think would be a very interesting conversation to hear. And then Doug's then involvement with the sequel trilogy and being kind of the new um, champion of, of how Star Wars feels, I think would be a very interesting conversation to have now with Ralph McQuarrie, right? Where it is very reliant on a lot of his unused designs or whatever it is. So anyway, that's why those two, they'd be sitting next to each other. Um, and then Marsha and Ben, um, Marsha edited, of course, New Hope, but then helped with Empire and with Jedi. And then Ben edited two and three pretty much digitally. And they're very good friends. And I've, I've been very lucky where I got to hear them talk in person about Star Wars very briefly for five minutes. And I was like freaking out. And I can't imagine like an hour long dinner of them talking further about like what it means and how Star Wars is paced and how Star Wars feels. Because I think both of them know it more than anyone. Um, and then Ryan would probably do a lot better job than I would at like curating the conversation. And so I would just want him there <laughs> to, to help me. Because <laughs> uh, I feel like we're very similar souls when it comes to like loving Star I always think of Ryan getting that ATAT uh, on the Star Wars show, yeah. right? It's like, okay, like <laughs> so Ryan and I are like the same, the same, yeah, the same Star Wars fan. And so that's my five. I don't know what we would eat. I'd probably be too nervous to cook. So we would just like order in like Chinese food or something. (laughs) Yeah. uh. (laughs) That's such a good dinner. I want to go. I think it's interesting that you didn't invite George. Well, he said earlier. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't really. (laughs) (laughs) I would want to be a fun dinner. I wouldn't want any tension to be there. I I know you said that interviewing George would be like kind of boring, but I, I feel like it's interesting <laughs> just because of like the people Brandon, that you have Brandon's here. like, wait, no, I didn't say boring. I just boring. like, what would I ask? I would him? like to go on record. I would like to go on record for the George Lucas Museum PR people that I've emailed. I do not think interviewing George Lucas would be boring. <laughs> <laughs> I would just be, uh, be, I just don't know what I would ask that hasn't already been asked. And I feel like a George Lucas conversation now would have to be, I, I talked about this actually. I was on Alden Diaz's show, and what I would be more interested in more than anything, more than him making the movies or whatever, is what he's been doing now. And I think his philanthropy work is is super well documented and super important. 
But I think I'm just more curious of like what he's interested in and what he's watching, right? We saw him in that yeah. uh, Game of Thrones documentary where he went to the Game of Thrones set and he loved Game of Thrones. I'm like, that's awesome. What else does George Lucas love? What else is he watching? Like he's in quarantine and they're interviewing Melody Hobson and she's like, yeah, my husband's making me watch uh, a bunch of boring 90s action movies. And I'm like, your husband's George Lucas. Like what else is George Lucas <laughs> You know what I mean? Like that is more the conversation I would ever want to get with George, right? And it would just be like an hour-long, free-flowing, just like let George mythologize <laughs> and then just kind of sit back. Um, so he might just need to be at a dinner by himself, just me and him, and he could kind of talk about whatever he wants. Charlotte, I feel like you offended our guest by saying he thought that interviewing George Lucas <laughs> might be boring. <laughs> he was like, no, 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 I love that. I also have to share that. uh, So we have a Google Doc, right, with our show notes with Brandon. And we have the, you know, the question at the end. And I didn't realize that you had put your answers, but just written them in white font. So when I'm asking it, they suddenly just like appeared because you highlighted them in the dark, in the, in the google doc and i was like oh there they are <laughs> and no one's ever done that before because <laughs> i had to write them down yeah. but also didn't want you all to know and so it was a little surprise I was like hello here i am it was. no that was amazing <laughs> it, was. it was like who would be your, your dinner and then they all just appeared on the screen like like a magic trick <laughs> i have to say i want to go to this dinner so badly like yeah Everyone at this dinner, I would love to talk to for hours of on end with booze involved, with good food involved. So I, I commend you. This is a perfect dinner. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel like this is a very on brand dinner for you. It's yeah. just all around very, very good. It's very well, good. Well, thank you. Uh, that's all I've really wanted to hear. I've, I've always, whenever I'm listening to the show, I'm always like, what would my dinner party be? And how would I tell that to Charlotte and Caitlin? And so I'm glad <laughs> it worked out. This manifestation in itself has, has worked out. Next, Marsha and Ben Bird. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I love your dinner. And of course, the caveat to any guests on our show is that we are also invited to your Sky Talkers dinner party. So we will all be there. It'll be a great time. The f- uh, the three of us will be huddled with Ryan Johnson at the head of the table, just like giggling and right. uh, watching the conversation play out and the stories that are told. And yeah, yeah. So I think I think this is the first time Ben has been invited to a dinner. Yeah. Yeah, and I Marcia, so. I think. I I know that Doug and Ralph and obviously Ryan has, but I think this is the first time for Marcia or Ben to get an invitation. <laughs> Welcome. Congratulations, Welcome Marcia. Yeah. Yeah. Them know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is going to wrap up our episode all about Empire of Dreams. Brandon, thank you so much again for being on the show. Where can people find you online? What are you doing? What's coming down the line for Talking Bay 94? Yeah, um, uh, I'm Brandon. Talking about 94 is my show where every week I just I interview someone that was in Star Wars or that worked on Star Wars. And if you hated my voice during this, I edit profusely and I'm barely in the episodes. But upcoming, um, I have Todd Baziri from ILM, who is like my longest interview ever. And it's incredible going through his career through the prequels and sequels. Um, I have, uh, like I mentioned, the author of Glove of Darth Vader. Uh, which is a crazy conversation. And then one of the ones I'm most excited about people to hear is um, his name is Dan Perry. And he is the one who created the opening crawl of Star Wars. And uh, it's just like a crazy, again, it's like we were talking about, like I had to call him on his cell phone and then he spent an hour talking about, you know, designing the logo and then designing his inspirations for the opening crawl. And um, you you take that for granted now. It's a iMovie plugin. 
Um, and so his conversation was very inspirational to me and it was a joy to talk to him. So those are all things coming up. Uh, you can find me anywhere at talking 94. It's mostly me just posting dumb stuff. So, um, if you enjoy that, <laughs> it's, it's worth a follow, I guess. You're a very good follow. I think it's definitely worth a follow yeah. and a definitely worth a listen. So thank you so much, Brandon, for being on the show. This was so fun to talk about one of our favorite documentaries, one of our favorite Star Wars movies, I guess you could even say <laughs> together. This was so great. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. What a, what a, what a great way to spend my evening. This was such a blast. It really was. Uh, so thank you again. And if you, after you follow Brandon, you can come and follow us um, on Twitter too. We're at SkyTalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, Facebook and Instagram, all under Skytalkers Podcast. You can find us. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, we would Really appreciate if you took a second to go and do that. It helped other people find our show too. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can also head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Neil, Jonathan, Marvin, Rad, Lindsay, Lola, Kat, Dave, Nikki, Christina, Hannah, Blast Points, Tom, and Martin. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.